you are listening to My City, My Health, the podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the My City, My Health portion of the Iowa City podcast for the Healthy Project. My name is Ellery Winterbottom. I am a junior at the University of Iowa studying human physiology um, with a minor in lifestyle medicine on the pre-PA track. Today, I'm joined with a very special guest, Dr. Rima Afifi. Can you please give us a brief background on who you are and what health equity means to you? Definitely. First, thanks for inviting me to chat with you today. I'm really excited about it. Um, the question about who I I mean, that's a big question, right? Who are you? Yes. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, I think it, it we are such a combination of so many things that happen throughout our lives. Um, in one of my classes, I often ask my students to um, create a um, I am from poem. And so if, you know, for the for whoever is listening and hasn't heard of those, are they're beautiful poems where um, they're very emotional, but they're poems where you sort of put together pieces of your life that have made you who you are. And I often think about all the various things that made me who I am. Um, and of course, it's, you know, rooted in the place that we uh, grow up in the people that we, uh, you know, grew up with, but then throughout our lives, where we've been, what experiences we've had, um, and all that. Um, I am, I guess, a pretty complicated or complex, I should say, a combination of identities. My father is uh, from Palestine, Palestinian, therefore I'm primarily Palestinian. My mother is American. They actually met in Beirut, um, Lebanon, which is where I was born and have spent most of my life. Um, and so that's a combination of sort of, um, I mean, I often think about how progressive my grandparents were to, to allow, you know, in the 1950s, um, such a union between people that were coming from very different cultures and also crossing religion. And that has really, really influenced, um, I think, how I think. Um, and what I do, I mean, I've, I've been exposed to um, so many different people um, that think differently and at the same time that all, you know, are such so close in terms of their family ties. And at the same time, um, have lived in countries where there is quite a bit of, uh, you know, I don't know if I want to say, well, there's oppression all over the world, so I can say that, but, you know, that people where people have particular opinions about different sects or different religions or different cultures or different, and I've seen that play out and realize how, uh, you know, the combination of, um, of my identities uh, both have exposed me to traumatic circumstances, but have given me great privilege. And uh, the fact that I do have an American passport has given me such a pass uh, when friends and family that I grew up with, I don't have those opportunities at all. And so very, very early, I learned about equity and health equity. Um, and so you asked for a definition of health equity and you know, health equity is so many things to so many people, but I really like the World Health Organization definition. And they focus on the fact that equity is sort of the absence of unfair and unavoidable um, and therefore unjust um, differences in health outcomes amongst groups of, of people. And so uh, it's unfair or unjust or avoidable when it's not based on biology, right? So if you look at breast cancer rate, breast cancer rates between male and female are very different. That is primarily biological. There's a lot of still differences in breast cancer among, you know, females um, that have different mm -hmm. identities, but just the male female is a biological thing. We would ne not necessarily um, think about that as uh, you know, an inequity or a disparity. But any um, difference among groups of people that is based on social, economic, political, commercial determinants of health 
and all the big, uh, you know, the big structures in society like capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy, um, those are things that lead to inequities. And so um, those inequities are unfair, unjust, and avoidable. So it seems like it's pretty clear that living in Lebanon kind of shaped your view of health equity. When you moved to the United States, was there a drastic difference in the things that were unequal and unjust, or was it kind of similar, but just in a different culture? So that's an interesting question, because we actually taught a course called Global Health Equity, and we taught it um, across four institutions in the world. Uh, And so we found a time where, you know, that was one of the hardest things was time zones, plus like schedules of when vacations are. But we had students and faculty from across, uh, you know, those four, um, those four places in the world. And the point was to see what is health equity? What does it look like globally? What are the things that are consistent about health equity or inequity globally? And what are things that are specific to, to place? And there are, you know, health inequities come from systems of oppression. That's similar everywhere, right? That's the commonality. Wherever you are, inequities come come from systems of oppression. Um, But the particular system of oppression may look a little different in different places. That's really cool that you have so many different backgrounds that you can bring to the table. I think that'll be an awesome discussion that we can have during this um, community reach outreach panel. It seems like you're going to be talking on the mental wellness and just like overall wellness. So what does mental wellness and well-being look like to you? Yeah, that's also another great question. So I think part of the issue with mental health, mental health is stigmatized all over the world, uh, all over the world. Um, And I think part of that is even though we talk about mental health, the minute we say the words mental health, people are only considering um, diagnosable mental illness. So they're, you know, they're, they're thinking about a particular end of the continuum. Even that end should not be stigmatized at all. But I think we need to widen the conversation to understand that mental health is a continuum. It's a continuum from 100% mentally well, which probably nobody is in the world, to 100% mentally unwell, which also probably nobody is in the world. And at any day or point in time, we go between the ends, you know, between that continuum. So there's one day, you know, one day I can get up and I can feel like I feel so good, but like I can conquer the world. I get, I'm out, out of my bed quickly. I'm getting dressed. I'm excited about my day. I feel like there's good things happening. And, you know, you just feel really well. And then there's another day where I can get up and it feels like the weight of the world is on my shoulders. I'm not confident at all about things. It's just really hard to think about like getting up and doing your, your, your day, right? Just going through your day. And that continuum, we all experience. We all can experience that continuum. So I think the first part of this idea of mental health is to start to unpack uh, what we think about when we say mental health and to understand that there is a continuum and that at any point in time, we can, you can, we can be somewhere along that continuum and that we're moving constantly um, mm-hmm. and that there's many factors that influence that. The other is that we seem to look very differently at physical health versus mental health. So if, we're, if we have a physical condition that requires us to get care, we don't seem to have a, a big problem. I mean, I wear glasses, right? So clearly my vision is not 100%. It's not 2020, right? For sure. 
Um, nobody looks at me and makes a judgment about my eyeglasses. Like nobody does. Um, but, and, and that is the same with many conditions. So we're okay taking medication for heart disease or for diabetes or, but somehow we look at mental health differently. So if people are trying to get care for their mental well-being, um, if they're trying, if they're taking medications for their mental health, we somehow see that in a very different light. And I think we need to also start breaking down and deconstructing where that comes from. Like, why are we so, um, you know, why do we, why do we treat mental health so very differently than we treat? And I don't mean treat as in, you know, medication or, or how, mm-hmm. how approach. Why do we approach mental health so differently than we approach physical health? Um, and so that's a lot of the work that I do is, is trying to change the narrative around what mental health is to understand that it's really about well-being. And I do a lot of work in mental health, but I do work on the, I'm not a psychologist. I'm, you know, I'm not a licensed mental health provider at all. So I, I work on the, on the side of mental health that is, um, you know, before a, a diagnosable condition. Um, but what we know very much about mental health is that there's a pyramid. And at the bottom of the pyramid are those conditions that affect us all, that stress us out, that make us perhaps not able to cope, um, that create mental distress um, in, in us. And that part of the continuum is everybody's responsibility. So you do not need to be a licensed mental health care provider to impact mental health. In fact, every single one of us has a role in impacting a population well-being and population well, uh, mental health. And we often focus on the fact that there isn't enough licensed mental health care providers, and that's absolutely true, and we need to get more of them. And at the same time, we need to realize that influencing mental health can happen everywhere. Um, and so a lot of the interventions that the World Health Organization is, is starting, to, has been actually promoting and is starting to, to, you know, get traction in the United States is peer-to-peer, low-intensity mental health support. There is so much that we can do when we learn how to support each other through, you know, we are, we're trained. It's not that anybody can do it. You're trained on how to support people, but you don't have to be a licensed mental health provider to take care of the bottom of the pyramid or the bottom and the next one up, Right. And what happens is if we do get those resources, those wider resources to support population mental health and population well-being, then we allow, we sort of save the time of our, you know, really critical licensed mental health care providers to, 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 to manage and, um, and support um, the smaller group of people that really needs their support, as opposed to really having no time because everybody's trying to get their time. I think that's really cool that to like think about the tiered levels as well, because that just like I always say, like creating waves like you just having a one one on one conversation with someone that can like spark so many other conversations in the community, which I think kind of ties into like a lot of your research you've been doing when when I was doing some research is you kind of focus on community participatory approaches. You tell me like a little bit about that and how you think it impacts like health equity and just like mental wellness as well. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So um, community participatory approaches are a way of doing research and practice um, that basically flips the narrative around who's an expert. Okay. So in general, we are all taught throughout our education, K through 12 and beyond, 
that the more education you have and the more degrees you have, the more of an expert you are. And so we sort of wear that, right? Like you walk into a room and you have to wear that expertise. Like I'm an expert. I can tell you what, you know, I I know a lot of things and I'm going to tell you what I know. Um, The problem with that is that we actually don't know a lot of things um, and we don't know about every community um, and we don't know the histories that have brought communities to where they are right now. And we don't think about the systems of oppression a lot. Um, And so community participatory approaches basically flip the narrative to say that it's not that you're not an expert, but everybody's an expert because everybody has lived experience. Everybody has expertise. And so I bring my set of skills to the table, but you bring your set of skills to the table and the communities in which we work, each person in that community brings a set of skills to the table. And it's only by combining all those skills together that we actually will be able to solve these really huge intractable problems of health and well-being. Um, it is a big shift in the way we do things because it opens up um, to the fact that uh, you know I may go in and you know my the needs assessment that I've done using you know a survey um, or looking at you know rates of conditions may tell me you know what, as an expert, (laughs) I think this problem is the priority problem in this community. And you might go in and the community might say, actually, yes, but that's not the problem we are most concerned with. And that's not the problem we want to work on. What we want to work on is problem Y. And a community participatory approach would actually say that you need to move forward with what the community decides is most important to them, irrespective of what you decide. Um, this takes a very long process of building trust and understanding and listening um, to community and being willing to sit with uh, uncertainty in a sense and, a, a, and and giving up a sense of control, right? Because we also, as humans, we like to have this sense of control that we have a plan and the plan goes from A to B to C to D, right? That's the plan. Um, and it makes us really uncomfortable when all of a sudden the plan doesn't go the way that we had thought it was going to go. But in community participatory approaches, um, we are a facilit- facilitators of a process. We are co-learners. Um, and so then the plan can go very differently if the community doesn't, you know, it feels like you're basically following the community's plan, not your own. Um, and so I am convinced that um, this is the way that we should do our work. Um, it's not the only way, right? Every strategy, every approach has positives and we need everybody and all the approaches that people feel comfortable with to really change um, health outcomes uh, or outcomes in general. So for example, we know policy change is really important. I am not, I don't feel like I have the skills to do policy change well, but I absolutely um, value you know, colleagues and um, people who can do that well because I know it's really important. So this is an approach that I feel is really important um, in order to advance our well-being. And the, reason, the way it's, it's linked to health equity is um, there's a lot of values that are related to community-based participatory research, but one of them is flipping power dynamics. And so basically it's turning over, it's, it's magnifying power um, of people in community, as opposed to those of us that have power imbued on us because either of you know a per, we're, we're part of the dominant of, of dominant society or the dominant identities, um, and so it's starting to flip to, to flip those dynamics and to say power resides everywhere, 
Um, and, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that's really important in community-based participatory research is the language that we use. Um, and so a lot of times we say, I'm giving voice to, that's, no, everybody has voice. We're not giving voice to anybody. We may be supporting voice. We may be magnifying voice. We may be uh, providing, uh, you know, platforms, but everybody has voice. Um, it's just that their voice has been muted for so many years by dominant society. Um, so, you know, there's a lot about community-based, I could go on about participatory <laughs> research and practice for a very long time uh, because it's such an important way to do work and really centers, um, you know, centers the issues and, um, you know, and histories of, uh, of community members. Um, I will say the other thing that I like about it is that um, we often come to, we often come to uh, a particular community or an issue from a deficit lens, which means that we're taught to find the problems. Um, that's how we're trained, right? What's the problem? And I'll, you know, I'll come help you solve the problem for one thing, which is, which is not the way that community participatory research, we're not saviors, right? We are just mm -hmm. all part of this um, kaleidoscope of life and we need to figure it out together. So that's one thing. Um, but the other thing is it completely ignores that there's huge strengths and assets in all of us and in any community. And that um, when you're only looking at a community from the perspective of a deficit, from the deficit lens, um, you're missing so much and there's no way we can get at equity just from a deficit lens. That was really powerful what you said about how um, it's giving power to those and that they have their own voice. It's not like we're giving them a voice. Gave me the chills. That was a very cool quote. I loved that. So what are some of the challenges that immigrants and refugees face in the Iowa City community and what is your work doing to help them? So there's many challenges. Um, one thing I will say is that a lot of these labels that we use and we put on communities also take away from them their other identities, right? So uh, we may work in communities that um, are refugee communities, but that's not all they are, right? They are, they are people, um, ultimately, that have experienced conditions that have made um, them have to leave where their home is, right? Um, and so in all the ways that I'm a person or you're a person, they're a person. And, um, and, and, and so even when we approach a particular community that has a label, I think we need to keep in mind that that's just one identity, and that may not even be the primary identity that they identify with, right? They may not want to be called mm -hmm. refugees or immigrants or, right? And that label itself puts them in a category within a dominant society that makes them non-dominant. And therefore, just even by labeling, mm -hmm. we have, we are continuing to oppress, right, in some ways. So I think just keeping that in mind as we approach these, any community is really important. Like, how do we approach communities from a completely non-othering perspective? Um, and othering is all over the place, right? Like, there's so much othering. Um, and so we have to work really hard, I think, to even understand ourselves and our biases and where they come from and how we've learned them and why we're interacting with people in a particular way. Um, really do that inside work to be able to, uh, you know, to work with others, with others there, you see right there, mm -hmm. to work with communities in a way that's not othering, that sees the common humanity in all of us. Right? Mm -hmm. Just in terms of how we label, I think it's really important. But um, 
communities that have uh, moved to the United States because of conditions in their own country, whatever those social, economic, political, commercial, uh, you know, d- determinants have been that have, that have required them to move, face a lot of a lot of struggles. Um, they face um, first, it's the conditions that they experienced in their own countries that you know have caused a lot of stress um, and potentially both physical and mental outcomes. But then they also come to a place where they have to relearn almost everything and are not always accepted, right? So we know that one of the really critical parts of mental well-being is a sense of belonging. Um, And if that sense of belonging is not there, for all of us, right? If that sense of belonging is not there, it's hard. It's hard. Um, And particularly also when there are intergenerational, you know, um, inter- more than one generation that's that has moved and is in a new place and is learning everything. And yet you always want to, you want to hold on to your culture, right? And you're scared for your children that that they're going to lose that culture. And so there's, there automatically there's, you know, in an in intergenerational movement, there's this tension that's already there um, that I totally understand um, completely, right? Yeah. Um, so that causes that, str- you know, that's the bottom of the pyramid. All those, those, you know, social um, issues that come up, those economic issues that those that come up, housing issues that come up, you know, employment, housing, um, um, and you know, the 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 oppression that they that they also experience. All of that is at the bottom of that pyramid that we talked about about mental health. Um, and so the way that we are you know thinking about this is in conversation with those communities what are some ways that can support um managing that bot the bottom of that pyramid while also really centering the strengths of this community as opposed to again just seeing it as a deficit or just seeing it as a label um so the work that we've been doing um in uh in iowa city and in iowa with uh, refugees and immigrant immigrants is to work on a prob- uh, work on a, a program called Problem Management Plus. It's a World Health Organization low intensity psychosocial intervention that's a peer to peer intervention. So um, individuals within those communities are trained on how to support their own community members um, to deal with problems of daily living. And what I love about Problem Management Plus is even the name of it. Although it is a mental health intervention, you know, low intensity psychosocial, um, part of the training is to know who you can help and who you need to refer. Because clearly, you know, there are people that need trained mental health care providers, right? Um, but um, so I lost my train of thought there. Um, but yes, what I like about it is that the Problem Management Plus part of it really gets away from the stigma of mental health, right? You're not coming to anybody and saying you have a mental condition, right? Mm-hmm. Which people then you know, just just have a reaction to. You're basically saying there are problems of daily living here. Um, and those problems cause us stress. And that stress is influencing the way we interact with within ourselves, the way we feel about ourselves and the way we interact with others around us. Um, and so how can we support each other in this process and try to manage that stress? And so in that process of working with peers, right, and it's somebody that they trust, it's somebody from their community that really understands the culture, so knows what types of language to use, knows what types of examples to use to support people, knows about, you know, the, the, the deep strengths inherent in community. And that conversation then opens so many doors of 
how do we manage these problems and how can we support each other in this process? And so that's mainly what we have been working on um, uh, in Iowa. And the Bureau of Refugee Services has um, really decided that this is a way um, to work, uh, at least one of the ways to work in communities that are, you know, that have had to move for any reason. And, and so they are the first, you know, it's the first state in the United States that's taken up this type of a psychosocial approach to, um, to refugee mental health that really centers strengths of refugees and provides peer-to-peer -peer support. There isn't any, any other state in the United States that's doing it at this level. So we're, it's being scaled up across Iowa, this program. Um, and, and that's just so wonderful to know. And I really, I mean, it's so wonderful that the Bureau of Refugee Services here has seen the power of this and has decided to take an approach um, that is so positive um, to mental health. Yeah, that is very impressive. And congratulations for all your work that you're doing with that. So how can people get involved and connect with you and your work if they're looking to connect? Yeah, I do want to say that this work is a team approach. Of, I'm, I'm one person of many yeah. people that have been working on this on this program. So just to, to put that out and and every you know, we have we have um, people from the College of Law. You know, this is a it's a complicated issue. And the more that we embed human rights, um, our, our colleague Amy Weissman from from the Human Rights Center has really been talking about mental health as a human right. And so, again, the more we embed these big concepts of you know rights um, and care into our programs, the better. So Will, Will Story, who's in the Department of Community and Behavioral Health, um, was a critical person in starting the conversation with the Bureau of Refugee Services. And um, Amy Weissman has been there from the beginning. And Jonathan Platt, who's a mental health epidemiologist, is now involved. And that's sort of our core academic team. But there is you know, a huge team at the Bureau of Refugee Services that has been really pushing this. Um, if people are interested in this work, they can definitely reach out to me, uh, you know, either by email. Um, that's probably the easiest way. I, you know, I respond to email quite a bit but if for some reason uh you know as you have done <laughs> and i appreciate if i don't respond i really appreciate nudges sometimes if you don't respond to the email right away then there's 200 emails later and you just sort of lose the email so i would encourage people to keep nudging me until they get a response from me but um that's you know that's one way i think to um to get involved uh in this work if you're interested in it that is great to hear. So to wrap it up, what is one thing that you would like the listeners to take away from our conversation we had today? Um, I think probably to really think deeply about the amount of othering that we all do every day in our lives um, and how to start reversing that, how to understand where it comes from um, and how we start to keep ourselves to account um, in that process, uh, because we really need to change the way that we interact with people if we are going to ever get to health equity. That is really powerful. Thank you so much, Dr. Fifi, for joining me today. And I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Mm -hmm.